Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I used to have more screens. I used to have, like, the NORAD kind of a setup with multiple monitors, and I I was the coolest kid at work, and... Is that is that what it takes? <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. And some somehow somewhere along the line, I decided. You know, I think that consolidating is good, and that sucks. You don't want to consolidate because as soon as you consolidate, you lose the resale value. It's very tough to go back once you consolidate. And mm. one of the monitors I had was free. It was a really nice one. It was a freebie because they they didn't. This is brilliant. I I went to when I quit my my last corporate job before I started freelance. I went into the IT person. I had this big cinema display, right? And I said, "Here you go." And they said, "What is this?" And I said, "It's the monitor that the company gave me for to do you know design work and stuff." And they said, "We have no record of that." I said, "You have no record that you purchased this thing," and. The IT person was a dear friend of mine. She said, you know what? It's just going to sit under a desk here. I'll tell you what. Anybody ask questions, I'll call you. For now, you can use it at your house. I never, mm. I, they never got a call. I got a free monitor from work. She said, it's better, better than a watch. <laughs> that was what I was going to get. You know, they sent this email that said, hey, you've been here for 10 years, and we really appreciate your service. Thank you. We love you. You're awesome. You are fantastic. Uh, please click on the link below to choose from your set of 10-year anniversary gifts. This email is not mon- is not monitored. Please do not reply. No one will <laughs> respond to your <laughs> to your request. <laughs> Most sensitive email ever. That's Love beautiful. The man. <laughs> How you doing? How's your week? You feeling strong? Your how's your chi? Your chi flowing? Do you ever find yourself marveling at, at the the deep recesses of the human brain <laughs> is that a quote should i know that or is it's that not you? a quote that's really i you? have found myself marveling at the deep recesses of the human brain tell me about that what is that the thing like? the things that you pull from long ago in your oh. <laughs> you know the things that all of a sudden right. like the last couple of weeks i have found myself like humming a song or or singing like a piece of a song and then i I stop and i think why is that song in my head what is that song what am i actually singing right now and then i have to like go like youtube or go to the computer and and search some lyrics i'm like wow of all songs that is the one that popped into my head right now why is that can you give me can you give me an example (laughs) what are we talking about are you singing fraggle rock again (sighs) Uh, no, I'm not singing Frank. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just like, uh, I, I, now I can't even remember. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, now I put you See, on the spot. Yeah. It's like, gosh, uh, oh God, what is the name of that song? It, it's one of those songs that just 
came into my head and I was singing like one set of lyrics and it was something about like, uh, if I had wings, oh, if I, if I could fly, I'd pick you up. <laughs> That's I, it's in my Google search. I could find the, and it's okay. Here it is. Benny Mardonis into the night. <laughs> I don't wow. even know who that is. I don't even know if I ever even knew the name of this song, but clearly somewhere it's like, you know, ingrained in my mind from an elevator or a grocery store somewhere. And yeah, I just like, it couldn't get it out of my head this morning. Wow. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, how did that stick in my head? Not, you know, yeah, that's not, I, it could be like some some formula for you know chemistry, but no, it's it's Benny Mardona's "Into the Night." <laughs> <laughs> I can't even place that. I can't even place what that sounds like. Oh, that's well, like a like what kind of time? What, what's the year? It's it's eighties, I would guess. It feels like an eighties uh, kind of smooth jazz sort of song. Oh, that's like if I could fly, I'd pick you up. Oh. Wow, I got that. It's a total like an elevator song. And I don't know, I don't even know like (laughs) why that's in my head, but there it was. Like that was, that was what I was singing. I'm like, what is that from? If I could fly, I'd pick you up and. I'm sorry for you. Yeah. Well, it's better than Cisco, the thong song. (laughs) <laughs> that was me. Somebody, you know, I told you I went to XOXO this last this weekend, last weekend, right? Since yeah. since we have spoke, I, since we half spoke, uh, last time I said I was going to go to XOXO, and you know, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really, it was really awesome. I'm not going to, you know, go too far into it. There was some great film stuff, it was film and animation, all this this wonderful sort of experimental indie um, film and animation, and they launched. Um, Empire Uncut. Remember Star Wars Uncut? Mm-hmm. The uh, fan, you know, fan cut. They, they assembled right. all the scenes fra- from fifteen hundred fans. Well, they, they did Empire Strikes Back now as, as Empire Strikes Back <laughs> Uncut. So Casey Pugh and Jamie Wilkinson and, and uh, KK Apple uh, were there to premiere the sequel, which was hysterical. It was. It, it's long. Once you once you get it. Uh, once you get the the gimmick, but there are some real gems in there. There's some very creative work. But the point yeah. is, somebody oh, yeah. posted somebody in a presentation during the day on Sunday said that they actually had um, uh, more. This was Lee Lee Alexander, I think she's a she's a writer, a you know, woman who writes in in the games space, and she says she has more uh, followers on Twitter than Cisco, and she loves the thong song. And so that is some sort of a milestone for her. And I don't really remember the point that she was making. All I know is I haven't been able to get the song out of my head in a week. <laughs> so I can, that's, that is the ultimate ear grenade. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's worse than an earworm. It is an ear grenade. It's an ear grenade. It just blows up your brain inside your brain of song. And it's just yeah. thong, the thong I think song. I, I, I think I'd rather sing Benny Mardonis or whatever his name was. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but what, uh, sh- what do you have any other good stories or should we uh, tell the people where we're from? Yeah, let's. Everybody, thanks for joining us. It's the next reel. Uh, I'm Pete Wright. That over there is Andy Nelson. 
Howdy. And we spoil movies. Uh, this week we are continuing our Stephen King series with the uh, uh, fantastic uh, Creep Show. 1982. But before we do that, you should get to know us a little better. Head over to thenextreel.com. You can catch up on all our past episodes and our monthly uh, film board fan chat. We're very excited. Got another one of those coming up. And uh, head, join the conversation. Facebook.com slash thenextreel. Twitter, thenextreel. All of anywhere that there's a place that you can put the next reel after it, we will probably be there. So you should go to those places. And uh, now, this week, back to... Stephen Smart versus people outsmarted. We don't know uh, whether he is uh, Scottish or a member of the United Kingdom, but we do know that he got pretty dominated this week. <laughs> it was. It was a week of, uh, uh, yeah, a little uh, dominance uh, put down on, on Mr. Stephen Smart, who, mm. uh, yeah, day one. It uh, didn't take very long after posting that first image for, for Hump Thug Nasty to just uh, pin it right to Stephen's back with, <laughs> with Unbreakable. <laughs> and uh, yes, so that made for a very short week, but it made for a week of a lot of really fun images, I'll say. That's it. What do you, what do you think of that, uh, that film, Unbreakable? You know, it's a, it's a film that I... Uh, I, I felt was all right. <laughs> really, really? Did you feel that? Yeah, that's it. It was. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, I know it has its uh, ardent fans. I know it has its uh, uh, all of its haters. I know it's it's very much kind of got both of those camps. And I've never been either of those. I find it a very slow film, um, and I kind of understand what Shyamalan was going for with it, but. You know, I I don't know. I don't think I ever quite got really into it, but I didn't think it was awful. I loved it the first time, like uh, with most Shyamalan films. I I should know better that I should never see his films twice, <laughs> ever. I should not. Do, I should have learned the first time, or some, or some of them once. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I mean, okay, that's fair. But most of them twice. I, if I see them second time, I'm I'm going to ruin the moment. And that's a mistake. Yes. So I, I should learn, and I, I sometimes have. This is one of the ones that I, I should have listened to that inner voice, um, and uh, I didn't. And then, then it sort of soured on me, so it didn't, didn't really stick. But visually, I think there's some really interesting things going on, and I love the images that he chose. I think they're, I, yeah, I think they're, uh, they're quite striking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you are, you're back in the seat this week. Right. Yep, I'm going to be picking seat. it up again for a, for a couple of weeks. So. Excellent. Well, Steve, Stephen has to, you know, depending on the outcome of the big election, because you know, Stephen is uh, he's across the uh, proverbial pond from us. Mm. He is he's actually, I if if I if my Google Maps is right, he lives very close to Edinburgh. I say uh-huh. right? Edinburgh, 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 Scotland. Yeah. So he's in he's in Scotland, and they are they voted today, and I don't know what the outcome. They're still counting. As far as I know, I don't know what the, what the outcome is, mm. but he's been he's been we've been talking quite a bit about that in our back channel. So we're, our thoughts are with the, uh, you know, there's a big decision, creating a new country. You think it all has to do with Nessie? <laughs> why why would it have to do with Nessie? Like bragging rights, yeah. squatters' rights? Yeah, maybe maybe the UK is like, you no, know, we really we really need to make Nessie ours. 
said by no one in the UK ever. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do trailers. <laughs> should go first because i've I already forgotten what which one I'm doing. <laughs> i think i am going to go first uh -huh. uh, my trailer this week is for saint vincent which uh if you haven't seen the trailer for this yet you definitely need to go out and see it it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun another really just fun kind of cranky old man performance by uh bill murray and as the kind of a cranky neighbor who ends up befriending and kind of mentoring the young boy who uh, lives next door with his single mother, played by Melissa McCarthy, another of my favorites. And then he ha also has his uh, stripper friend, Naomi Watts, uh, the lady of the night, uh, who is uh, in the mix in this story. And it just looks like a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I enjoy watching Bill Murray in a lot of these sorts of roles. I think it uh, is the sort of thing that is just fun to watch. But um, the thing that uh, I found interesting is, you know, there was a story, I think it was in Variety last week, about a guy, about the director of this film, Theodore Melfi, who wrote and directed it. And um, it was kind of like this story about like, hey, how do you go about getting Bill Murray to be in your film? And it was just this this kind of this story of this journey he went through because he's not he's not a big name director. He's done a number of short films and and a, a TV movie, and that's pretty much it. He hasn't had a lot of credits. Uh, he's done some more producing, but again, it's all shorts and stuff. So, um, but he you know he he ended up getting this script uh, you know optioned by a, a, a production company that had a, 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 a producer who had the magic 1-800-BILL-MURRAY phone number. And so then it was just this process. And he basically left message after message um, and just kind of, you know, all sorts of different kinds of messages trying to get Bill Murray to uh, be interested in the story. And he would kind of pitch it and everything. And then randomly one day, Bill Murray called him back and it just it started this conversation. And Bill Murray wanted to kind of, uh, you know, look at the script. And so he had to mail the script to someplace up in upstate New York where Bill Murray happened to be. And. And then um, he didn't hear for a couple weeks, and then he finally heard, and Bill Murray wanted to meet, and it didn't, couldn't work out because he was doing another project, and then um, so it had to be you know a month later or something. And it's just this endless back and forth of trying to coordinate with him because Bill Murray, you know, he's he's this actor who doesn't have an agent, doesn't have a manager, doesn't have any of those people anymore. Um, he's just he just does things when he wants to, and you have to have that magic one eight hundred Bill Murray phone number to uh, get him involved. And so the, it was a really fun story about how this guy actually got him to be in it. And it looks like a great Bill Murray performance and something that I'm going to enjoy. I think it does, too. I did not know any of that story about the 800 number, and I, I now want to get an 800 number. Who doesn't? And, and you know, I think I'm just, I need to just post it places without my name attached to it and just see what happens. That would you be know? pretty funny. Like, the it magic... would be... Uh, the key uh, is you have to have a voice that's not yours leave the message. I mean, have the recorded message. Yeah, like you would do it. Yeah, or or, a, or somebody with a Scottish accent, perhaps. Yeah. Ooh. Or, or a UK accent. Ooh, as it, which, we, either one, we won't know until probably a couple of days tomorrow. Right. Maybe. Okay, that'll be good. So that's a plan. We'll put that in motion. Yes, yes. Uh, and we should see this movie. Absolutely. All right, good pick. When's it? When's it hit, did you say? Uh, I didn't say. I believe it's going to be opening. It's been kind of a limited thing, but it's going to be opening in October, I believe, 
uh, limited October 17th, and then it looks like wider on the 24th. All right. I like it. We'll yep. see it. I'll be there. Let's go see it. All right. My trailer this week is one that I'm actually sort of surprised we didn't, we haven't talked about. Uh, this is a, a most violent year. In fact, I think I'm surprised because you swear that we've already talked about it, but it's not there anywhere. So, well, I, you know what? I think we, I, I feel like we talked about it in our 1981 series. Yep. In context of, uh, I feel like maybe it was. I don't know. Escape from New York or something violent. Those, yeah. And actually, it may have it may have been it may have been my dinner with Andre just because he gets on the subway. <laughs> See the <laughs> the messy subway. I honestly can't remember. Well, and that's the that's the gist of a most violent year. It is a thriller. It's set in New York City during winter of 1981, and that's it plays off of the fact that this is uh, one of the most statistically violent years in uh, New York City's history. And uh, so it's it's all about an immigrant family uh, trying to make their way in, in this uh, world turned upside down with violence and decay. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it looks really great. It comes from J.C. Chandor, who hasn't done a whole lot, but what he has done ends up having some big ticket people in it um you know he obviously did uh, uh margin call uh, and uh, after that all is lost with robert redford and uh, and then uh, a most violent year uh is and, and he is also slated to direct Deepwater horizon the the true story of the the big oil spill so he's got a lot of stuff coming up it stars oscar isaac who i like very much um uh, you know oscar isaac uh Oh, yeah. it, was a, it was Lewin Davis was the last thing I, I've seen of him, but I I deeply liked uh, liked his performance in that movie. Uh, and he David, was in Drive. He was in Drive. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, David uh, Oyelowo, uh, which I also like. He did uh, he's he did uh, Planet of the Apes. He's, uh, he's he did uh, Jack Reacher. He you know he's he's been around a bit. Uh, has a, a Quite a distinctive um, O yellow O. That's how they, they phonetically pronounce it. There, O yellow O. Mm. Fancy that. I'm, I've been doing it wrong. I hear that's how he likes you pronouncing it, though. And 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 Jessica Chastain. <laughs> Chastain. Chastain. Uh, is uh, also in this film, so you know it looks. It's got a great cast. It's got a, uh, I think, a, an innovative and, and intriguing director, and I think it. And it's set in a very interesting time in New York City's history, and it happens to be set in a time uh, that is uh, very close to my heart. These early eighties, I'm, I'm a big fan of the early eighties, and so I, I look forward to this film. It's kind of a, it's kind of it. It's got that sort of Godfather two vibe to it. So um, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, comes out December thirty first of this fine year right at the end of the year yeah yeah they're gonna they're gonna really drive home that point of the most violent year yeah it's gonna really put a fine point on it that won't be too far off from when uh, we see oscar next in star wars i know are you excited about that yet i am maybe a little bit but yeah. I'm, I'm i'm trying not to get very excited it's coming yet. here it is it's bubbling up it is. Mm-hmm. Andy, I need you to just uh, check down there. It's it's the most amazing thing. She's just in a ball under the stairs, and she won't come out. You can talk to her, though. She'll listen to you. You're good with people. Coming soon.
haunting tales of horror. Creep Show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. Creep show will grab you, grow on you, and give you the creeps. No, this is going to be an entirely new experience. Creep show, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Jordy, I mean Andy. <laughs> Creep show, nineteen eighty-two. This is our second in our Stephen King film and uh, Stephen King series, and uh, this one. Uh, I'm just gonna say it. I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I have always had a lot of fun watching this movie. <laughs> this movie, <laughs> I, you know, I, I put up on my letterboxd after I watched this. I can't remember exactly, but you know, basically, it's like. There are films from your youth that, no matter what, they will always go down as classics in your head just because of the time of your life that you saw them. Yeah. And this is one of those films that, I mean, it came out at a perfect time. I actually don't think I saw it in 82. I, I'm sure I saw it a, a few years later, but I started watching it at a perfect age for me to be watching this movie. And it's just burned into my brain. And it's just so much fun to watch. It it is it absolutely is and I'm I'm with you I mean I didn't see it it was actually a surprise um, watching it I'm sure the Amazon reviews are going to be all up in arms about the quality of the transfer um, <laughs> <laughs> because that seems to be all that people get up in arms about but uh, I saw when I first saw this film it was a copy of a copy of a copy um, of VHS and it was terrible I mean it was just terrible and it was a uh, probably I was you know I, I think I was uh, you know, spending the night at a buddy's house or something, and we were we, you know, we were messing around and put on Creep Show, and and that was the first time I saw this movie, and I remember it at the time. I remember it being scarier than it is. It's it's really not, but some <laughs> of the images it really stuck with me um, in in a just crazy way, and uh, uh, I, I feel like we I feel like we could probably do a show on each one of the vignettes. <laughs> Right. <laughs> in spite of my uh drive to for restraint but um i'll i'll tell you uh when when that kid starts going voodoo on his dad that's one that wasn't scary when i was a kid but now it is <laughs> now right it's you're in a different place now <laughs> wait a minute hey, watch out for what junior's reading that's right <laughs> so the, the one of the the biggest treats about this film is is just the uh, you know it it pulls together a fantastic cast in uh, you know to uh, uh, to to go through these little vignettes these Stephen King vignettes and and uh, it, some surprising 
casting uh, uh, catches in this film that uh, that I had forgotten. I'd completely forgotten, for example, that it was E.G. Marshall uh, right. in in the uh, look, fighting, battling the cockroaches. Completely forgot uh, Adrian Barbeau. Completely, I did not forget Hal Holbrook uh, or Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. Those are those are. Uh, those are fantastic performances. Uh, how about how about uh, Ed Harris? <laughs> Ed Harris with hair. I completely forgot Ed Harris was in this. Completely and forgot. I had no idea how uh, fantastic of a dancer he was. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so what's uh, how do you want to walk through this thing? You want to start uh, vignette by vignette. Yeah, I guess we can go through each vignette and then just kind of talk about everything else as a whole. It uh, it starts a uh, it starts with a little bookend piece uh, where we've got, where we meet actually Stephen King's son, uh, who you know carries the mantle of the bad seed, uh, generation after generation. He's just uh, he's a horrible boy, and his <laughs> friends who hang out outside his window are horrible horrible people. Well, they're dead. They're also very dead. Uh, and uh, so it starts off with this, we get in the fight, and he introduces this concept of, or the, introduces us to the context of uh, the creep show. It's based on a comic, and, and Dad doesn't like the comic. And uh, and I, I just, I love this intro because it, uh, after the blow-up where the kid says, don't throw it away, Dad, don't throw it away, uh, he throws it away out into the gutter, and uh, and the dad says... That's what fathers are for. That's <laughs> what fathers are for. I found myself saying that. What a brutal, <laughs> brutal man. <laughs> just bad. So, uh, so that's how we, we meet the, uh, we, we are introduced to the show. And once we do that, we, we get this, uh, we, we start getting these beautiful uh, uh, transitions, these comic transitions. And they really are, um, you know, they, they are uh, homage. The whole film is an homage to these old uh, horror comics, uh, you know, of yesteryear. I was, I was not much of a fan of horror comics. Were you? I, you know, I wasn't. I, I don't know if I ever read any horror comics. I think I was just more into kind of the you know superhero sort of comics. Yeah, I mean, it's these it's these old sort of uh, what was it called? It was like EC Comics, educational or uh, entertaining, no, entertaining. Com- entertaining, yeah, entertaining comics, right? Entertaining comics starting in the forties into the into the fifties, and I think ending in the sixties. Um, was they, just that one was of the these... ones that introduced us to like Tales from the Crypt, and uh, right? I mean, those were the the early ones. Right. Yeah, that was the big one that they had. And then there's, uh, I mean, the whole idea of this film is, you know, all of those EC comics and some of the early DC comics, um, all those those things like House of Mystery, House of Secrets, The Witching Hour, uh, Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, The Haunt of Fear, you know, all these kind of just things that had been around. Uh, you know, it was it was that time where I guess there was, you know, I don't know if it was just because of, uh, war going on and all of that sort of thing. Uh, you know the you know they say the 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 sci-fi boom happened because of the atomic discoveries and all that. So, I, you know it's it's interesting to see why these comics started popping up. But the uh, they were very popular, and of course you know with this sort of comic book, um, there was always that discussion of the whole idea of our children's minds being. Uh, you know, ruined by them and all of that sort of silliness. And, uh, you know, I think that it was, uh, there was a lot of stuff that came out of that as far as um, 
you know, different rules that people were trying to establish and everything. But in the end, they, they I don't think any of that worked because obviously the comics have continued. And I mean, they are a great little, you know, type of comic that is out there. It's obviously kind of a specialized comic. But they are very fun, and they created these very fun tales, and clearly the filmmakers of this film, uh, particularly Stephen King and George Romero, uh, really wanted to tap into that vibe of these comics and really kind of almost like pay an homage to them, really, in, in their filmmaking style, which ends up working very much like a comic book quite a bit. It really does, and it, you know, this feels like the best book report ever. You know what I mean? Like these guys, like Stephen King, George Romero decided we're going to do something that just really celebrates in the most fantastic and frivolous way, um, you know, the work of these early comic book artists. And so the art direction, I think, is really, you know, it's a really nice touch. These transitions between vignette um, that that give us the introduction through the um, what, what are we as the Crypt Keeper? Is that um, what, we're, yeah. what we're calling I, him at this point? I, I guess he is. I don't know if he's officially the Crypt yeah. Keeper. But yes, anyway, I think that's, so the, yeah. yeah. So we meet the uh, we meet the skeleton that sort of leads us through the uh, uh, the the tale as the host, and uh, and we begin with uh, Father's Day. Uh, Daddy needs his his Father's Day cake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is this is kind of a, a fun little story. I I don't know if I've ever fully understood like that's one thing that i find in all these stories is like the motivation behind the characters like you you can't really focus on that so much because it's like okay i mean this this father was terrible to bedelia and so bedelia took this uh you know this ashtray this giant stone ashtray and smashes him over the head and he dies and and so she for seven years she goes and and uh and you know, you know apologizes drinks at his uh, graveside until finally he pops out of the ground and because uh, he wants his father's day cake and he kills her and he goes on a killing rampage and kills her well doesn't kill everybody he kills just enough people until he can behead somebody and make his own father's day cake out of the head essentially <laughs> Yeah, it it sounds uh, really in, insane when you say it, uh, but it's it it does it's it makes its own sort of internal sense when you're watching this sure. this sort of universe that they they create in this this little this little piece of of uh, wonder. Um, yeah, and and again, I I think they they do a fantastic job of bringing in the the uh, you know the comic, not just in the transitions, but the comic feel, um, you know in the uh in all the reaction shots in any of the and there aren't very many jump shots or jump cuts in this uh in this film i mean really it's creepy uh but there there aren't a whole lot of booze um but what we do get is these wonderful sort of extended reaction shots where the the background you know changes and turns into one of the sort of comic kind of mondrian comic montage sort of splash things how what are we calling those how do you what's the real yeah, word it's just kind of that. for that I don't know, but it is kind of that comic book background, kind of almost like expressing their internal feelings yeah. behind them, like, you know, kind of a, like an explosion behind their head, like their brain just exploded because of the craziness of seeing a, a dead uh, dead person walking around with a head for a cake. Exactly. When Mrs. Uh, what's her name? Danvers? Is that who it is? What, she's wandering around looking for the, uh, uh, or maybe it was 
Aunt Bedelia? No, she was the one who died. I get all the names. I get so confused. Uh, anyhow, the, the older lady is looking around for why everybody suddenly disappeared and every light in her house has gone blue. And uh, she finds the dead, uh, the dead um, uh, maid. Sylvia. Yeah. And, oh, she finds the dead maid, right? Yeah, right in the behind the, the opens the glass and, or opens the door, and the maid comes out and she screams, and that's that's a, one of those sort of great moments of comic book frenzy, and uh, and and I think it 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 kicks the it kicks off the very uh, the sort of climax of this vignette when when um, uh, when uh, the old man comes out from the grave and with the cake head on a. On a cake, actually, right. and the head in the cake, uh, and so in this one we do see uh, we do see Ed Harris um, crushed by a gravestone. Yeah, and that's just one of those things. It's like he is so slow to get out of that. If that started moving on me, I would be moving pretty quickly to try getting out of that. I know I couldn't grave. tell what he was going for. Right? Was it like, oh my gosh, I actually think that there is a connection between every move that I make and the move of this giant. Uh, right. headstone right is that uh, like like i wonder if i'm somehow tied to it right that's exactly how he acts it doesn't completely there's like there's no logic no it, it doesn't work and, and we haven't seen him drinking we saw aunt bedelia drinking so yeah but he he wasn't drinking he was dancing and so it's you know his added his actions there don't quite make sense and you know it doesn't really matter in the long run uh and then nathan the the dead man he he clearly has some sort of supernatural power because he's actually like when we finally see him he's like pulling the gravestone forward you know as he gestures with his hands it's like he has magic and is pulling it even though he's not touching it so right 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 but, uh, and the gravestone falls and he pops and we we lose ed harris because he pops not yeah. unlike uh hot fuzz the popping with the gargoyle that's right. <laughs> Very similar although, feeling. Although oddly, this isn't nearly as bloody as no. that. <laughs> it really is not very bloody, and it, it it's it is uh, it's one of those that I I was really tempted to sit down and watch with my daughter, but I I didn't. I think I thought better of it. Some of the I think the cockroach <laughs> thing would have would have thrown her over the edge. But it really is. It's while it's not quite a complete family film, it's it's not you know it it's it's not so much a horror film. It's it's a motion comic more than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, although we do see the um, Nathan uh, Plum twist the head off of uh, that poor woman. That really just twists the head right backwards. Yeah. Uh, that was a that was a nice moment. You know, it's fun if you go over to YouTube. Um, Tom Tom Savini, who is a fantastic makeup person, uh, special effects. Uh, he did a lot of this sort of stuff. Through uh, with a lot of George Romero and his films with the zombies and just all of this stuff. And he did all the effects work in this film. And um, somebody who, I don't know if it's somebody who's tied to him, although it's very strange because this person clearly has access to a lot of footage, um, like behind-the-scenes footage of the actual makeup team doing all their effects work. Uh, it's Gormeister100 is the, is the username on YouTube. And that person has uploaded... There are like ten, nine or ten uh, videos, basically, of um, the kind of like the behind the scenes of Creep Show that you can watch, and it's just—I mean, literally—it's like somebody watching uh, or filming with their video camera, and 
just walking around like there's no narration it's there's nothing but you get a kind of a nice behind the scenes look if you can sit through it all of the effects work and it's really kind of funny i was watching some of it and it's just so off-putting to see the zombie or not this i guess he's kind of a zombie but you know the dead father uh, standing there grabbing his daughter's neck, grabbing Bedelia and twisting it. And you hear, and it's just all like, you, you're just hearing it like they're filming it on set. And you hear uh, Romero going, okay, okay, now now you're going to twist her head. And and, you, and she'll just does do this little twist. And, and then you hear the guy inside the suit talking, you know, like, well, should I twist it like this? And, you know, it's, it's just so <laughs> off-putting because there's there's no music, there's no sound effects, there's no screaming. It's just, and then you sh- you see like there's actually you know, a shot from her front as he twists her head, a shot from her back as he twists her head, although she was actually turned around at that point. And then they have a dummy head that he really whips around. And then they just use that to edit. But it's just, it's a really interesting glimpse into the behind the scenes work of working with effects and how tedious and slow and boring it can be and how you have to get all these different shots in order to have the magic pieces that you need in order to cut it together and make something that is that works and is effective for the story that you're telling that's uh, that's fantastic i hadn't uh, i had not seen all of those videos and uh, i'm absolutely going to i think that's hysterical uh, particularly a film that feels very much like you look at the cast and crew list on this film there are a lot of people it's like a real movie right it's a real movie oh yeah oh yeah and yet it feels uh <laughs> what's not insulting <laughs> do you know what i mean like it, it's a real movie and they used all these people to magically capture the sensation of it being a film that i made in my backyard well it definitely has the b-movie vibe you know and and i mean but it's, b-movie is, yeah i don't know there are there are times with the filmmaking style in this i look at it and go wow they just this is like the most bland type of shot they could get uh, for filming this, but then there are shots. I'm like, wow, they really, um, they clearly were thinking about that. And so there was the bland stuff that wasn't very interesting to pair with, uh, I think this fantastical over the top comic book stylized stuff that they were shooting. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they found a nice, uh, way of working this story so that it could balance that out because you kind of need that yin yang. You really do. And I think there's a great contrast between these two vignettes, something to tide you over and they're creeping up on you. Of course, the, the tide you over is uh, Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. And, and uh, this is a, uh, a, a lover's spat where Leslie Nielsen discovers that Ted Danson has been having an affair with his, his wife and, and he is exacting revenge in a very patient fashion uh, <laughs> by burying each of the, lovers up to their neck in the sand on the beach and waiting for the tide to come in and he gives them each a tv uh connected because they're they're not in the same place on the beach and so he gives them each a tv with a very long coaxial cable (laughs) connected to each other and so he uh, uh so they can watch each other drown and um one of the things that i i couldn't help feeling it you know after they do the burial stuff leslie nielsen goes back to his fancy house and doesn't it feel like a sitcom to you 
I mean, everything is taupe. It's very crisp and clean. It just feels very much like a set. It's about as boring as you could possibly dis- find, uh, you know, cinematically. Like, it's oh, just, yeah. it's not interesting to watch. And it, and it's very, very bright. All the lights are on everywhere. Like, there's nothing haunting about it at all. And, I, you know, it, the context, I, or I think the, the contrast uh, of this one to They're Creeping Up on You, which, again, also very light, very bright, uh, but... Uh, the way they use the camera with E.G. Marshall alone in, uh, you know, ultimately alone in his, you know, germaphobe kind of hideaway, um, you know, the way they use the the close-ups to to uh, capture the, the uh, you know, the cockroaches and then reverse the camera and do these reverse angles where you see the, you know, the, the poison spraying down upon, you know, upon these little critters, um, I, I think is a much more dynamic and interesting style. And I think it's fascinating to watch watch these these styles is completely bland boring uh to really dynamic and engaging uh you, you know just 20 minutes apart yeah yeah absolutely I mean, and, it, and it, it really feels like different completely different filmmakers well and that's something that's interesting with a lot of these anthology films is oftentimes you will have different directors directing each of the vignettes and you go back through the history of anthology films and you look at i mean anthology films have been around and anthology stories have been around uh you know for centuries but anthology films uh i mean they they started in the early uh days of film 1919 uh there's a film i don't know how you say it umheimliche gesichten something like that i'm sure that's uh, i'm sure that's i'm sure, I'm sure that. that's Some, exactly somewhere. right Somewhere uh, right here, and I'm the only one who's yeah, you are alone doing that. Um, but the horror films really kind of took it on, uh, starting in 1945 with Dead of Night, uh, which is a fun little British film where you know it's kind of this. They set up this idea of you've got this framing story of you know people coming together and telling a story or telling these stories, and then you go into each of the stories and. The uh, this kind of just kind of took that whole mantle of telling that type of story in this anthology film, but oftentimes you did have different directors, and um, that is something that's very interesting with this one is it's all George Romero directing the whole film, but it does feel sometimes like some of these stories were directed a little better than others, and I don't know if they just had more time with some stories than others or if it was his. Uh, intention to direct some of them a little stronger or or what but you're right cuz the uh cuz that particular story the uh, something to tide you over does end up feeling um a little more bland than then like they're creeping up on you well it does and what's interesting about that like uh, romero did direct the whole thing but he he had uh different editors working for him for for many of these so you know michael right. spolin did father's day and they're creeping up on you he edited something to tide you over himself which doesn't actually bode terribly well for his editing skill but um uh, you know I, maybe that's a part of it paul hirsch uh did uh, the crate uh and uh then pasquale buba and did the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. And, and, you know, you look at, for example, Paul Hirsch, and I'm, I'm a big fan of The Crate. Like, The Crate is, is uh, I don't know if it's my favorite one, but it's, it's right up there. Uh, and, uh, you know, his, he, I, I find it a much more sort of engaging, um, you know, piece of editing. And this is a guy who's edited, you know, some very big uh, action films and, uh, you know, and some duds like, uh, you know, our favorite Raising Cain. 
but you know what I mean? I mean, there's this sense that, um, you know, you, you can actually start to see some of the some of the trends. Now, Michael Spolin, I don't know anything about Michael Spolin. As far as I know, uh, you know, creep shows, IMDb shows him as just directing these segments. Um, uh, but again, Pasquale Boba did uh, did Heat. Um, and so, you know, there's a, another example of that, that sort of, um, that gift of, of editing to the camera, even though they're, you know, we're looking at the same cinematography, the same direction, uh, the power of editing really, I think changes the dynamic of, of the vignette in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And like we talked about, I- I'm sure that Romero is working on a different level than Kubrick <laughs> from The Shining, but it, I mean, the editing, it even boils down to which shot did they select to right. tell the story. And I think that there's something to be said for having a different editor finding the right shots to tell the story in the way that's going to be the most effective. And, you know, something like something to tide you over. While I find it effective and creepy, um, it all inevitably ends up being one of the ones that I uh, like the least, I guess. I'm I'm super torn on that one because I know what you're saying, but it, you know some of the visuals in that one. Like occasionally, like I'm watching along and it's it's I'm not feeling very spooked, and maybe it's because I have that natural feeling about drowning. Uh, that when I see them, you know, they they transition again to that comic, um, that the comic art of Ted Danson's head underwater. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, after he's and and, and uh, I I find that just really horrifying. Uh, and so that's one that that's one that really sticks with me in terms of the entire vignette uh, on the whole. I find it really sort of non, uh, kind of a non-starter. Um, well, and that's and that's one of those ones that I was talking about earlier, where it's like the motivations for the characters. It's it's so strange. It's not like you have a good guy and a bad guy and somebody exacting revenge. I mean, here you've got a couple who, okay, they're not killing anybody, but they have been unfaithful. And the husband, who is the the one who's really in the right, he decides to exact his revenge by by killing both of them in, in one of the strangest ways imaginable. Yes. And so he exacts his revenge, but then the two of them come back from the dead to kill him and to kind of put him through the ringer as well. So it's it's like okay, so there's no real good or bad guy in this car- or in this particular story. And maybe that's another reason why I, I find it not working quite so well. I mean, it's it's a horror story. I don't think you need to necessarily have kind of the good guy, bad guy, because it that's one of the, the fun things about the, the genre is you can play with that quite a bit. But it doesn't really give you anybody to grab onto necessarily. You know, it, it's funny about that when they also change the rules, right? Um, because... What we we are introduced in Father's Day to this idea of the decaying corpse coming back after seven years, mm-hmm. and it, then we get we we skip over the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill to something to tide you over, where the horribly decayed uh, creatures of the sea now come back after about forty five minutes. Right. Uh, well, and and they're even kind of setting you up to break their own rule again by how do they kill Leslie Nielsen? They put him in the exact same situation. They bury him so he's going to drown underwater. Right. Okay, but you just told us that if you do that, then they're going to come back then from they, the dead. So is Leslie right. Nielsen now going to come back or is he going to die? Like, <laughs> What are the rules here? And I don't know, because in this film, here we are trying to trying to parse rules. But, you know, it's it's funny to me when the rules mess you up. You know, like the, I, I find Father's Day completely fine. 
that there after seven years a zombie comes back pushes the thing over and pops ed harris and then puts the head on the platter for a cake that that makes a total sense but in something to tide you over after 45 minutes is now a decayed zombie that's no that's a bridge too far people that's you've, you've really you've crossed the awkward line yeah right. uh, you definitely know, we, something i've never i've never thought about in this film yeah, watching right. it before it's like you know when you start thinking critically okay that's when you really find these problems but otherwise i mean i don't know <laughs> if i ever really worried about that how does uh jordy verrill stick up for you stand up for you it's one i don't know i find his character i mean stephen king uh wrote the this was um one of the original stories that uh, he had actually written as a short story that then he adapted into this screenplay. He wrote the screenplay for this. Um, two of the stories, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill and The Crate, were based on previously published short stories that he had. The rest were original for this film. Um, I've never read the original short story uh, called Weeds that, uh, that King wrote, but... I don't know, the character of Jordy Verrill, as comical as he can be and as, as comical as the story is, um, he really drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just like the, you know, I don't know, it's just the idiot, uh, kind of the, the trailer trash sort of character that is the kind of the cliche person who's going to find the, the meteor that falls from the sky or, you know, the whatever it is. You know, I I cut this one some slack. Uh, a because I think it's fun to watch Stephen King. Uh, you know, just as young as he is in this film, I I find it uh, amusing. And I you know maybe it's because I was raised by hillbillies that I I find some affinity for them. <laughs> but the um, uh, the uh, what I love about this one, I really genuinely love, is the transformation of the set. Uh, oh, yeah. I have a great. Uh, fondness for the way the green, the grass, that sort of alien grass takes over, um, you know, not just Jordy, but everything that he's touched and starts spreading throughout the house and all over the house and then suddenly down the road. I think of all the stories, this is the one that makes you think, wow, this this little vignette has changed the universe of of the movie in some way. Right. I mean, this is not just, you know, exacting revenge. This is an alien change that when it's over, I'm left thinking, when is that green stuff going to reach the city? You know, what what are they going to do if? And I don't think that about any of these other ones. Not a one. Yeah. No, I, I agree. This is this is definitely kind of set up that way, and it, and I really, I mean, I I say that about the the story that I find it kind of the the annoying, the one that's a little more annoying, and that his character is annoying. That being said, I really do enjoy the style of the story. I enjoy his flashbacks, or his not his flashbacks, but his the way that we step into his imagination right. as he as he pictures himself getting uh, you know taking this meteor to get prize money. Or uh, you know, taking going to the doctor or the image of his father, all those things are a lot of fun, and I like the way that they do that and how they have like going back to the comic books when he's uh, picturing himself going to the doctor. You transition with this great skull and crossbones uh, <laughs> yes. image, like a mat across the screen, and and the picture is playing out inside that that shape, and it's just like it's so much fun. It is. It's really and, fun. Yeah, so it's it is a very fun story, and you're right. The sets that that kind of that almost fluorescent green that everything has, and the way that it just kind of slowly pervades, 
is I mean it is a really fun story and I, I do like it quite a bit even if even if the character just makes me a little crazy yeah yeah um the the crate is the longest of the stories this is the fourth story i'm skipping over the leslie nielsen ted danson uh yeah, so we talked about that one yeah already. we talked about that one enough the the crate is one that this is um you know this is when you bring up the the uh the motivation piece i don't know if it's necessarily the motivation but the mechanics sort of the the dramatic mechanics of this one i think are either the most confusing or the most interesting um the the way this vignette is set up leads me not at all to the way this vignette ends. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> Think it over first. <laughs> uh, this is uh, in this one. We have Hal Holbrook uh, and uh, Hal Holbrook and his, who plays his, uh, his lovely Adrian, Adrian Barbeau. Oh, right. Uh, of course, Adrian Barbeau wife, plays his horrible, yeah. horrible, uh, Wilma Northrup, horrible, uh, wife. Call and me Billy. Call me Billy. And Fritz Weaver, uh, plays Dexter. And, and, uh, we have essentially these three, uh, who, well, and, and the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, custodian, uh, yeah. played by, um, Don Kiefer is Don Mike Kiefer. The yeah, thank you, Chandler. Uh, and so we have these four, and they discover um, they're they're at a, a garden party for the university, and they uh, we we get wit- we bear witness to uh, Billy's just she just is missing that part of her frontal lobe that allows her to behave well in social situations, and she's just really very horrible to Hal Holbrook and old Henry Northrup, and and uh, you can you you feel that he is a, a, because he is such a phenomenally talented actor, uh, you know you could really feel that he is outpacing this film in his emotional reaction to uh, Wilma Northrup. That said. Uh, a, a parallel story we have fritz weaver called in to the basement where uh, don Kiefer's character has discovered a crate under the stairs that has been right. there since what 1923 something like that although the, the stamp on the side of the box is like 1888 or something like that right right right, right. It's many 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 decades this thing has been down there and they decide uh, what a treasure let's open it and uh, unfortunately don Kiefer does not make it through the opening <laughs> what do you think of this story? I love it. I, I really have fun is watching this Is this one your this favorite book. one, would you say? I would say it is. And and maybe it's just because they've kind of developed the characters a little more. Uh, but I just, I really enjoy everything that goes on in it. I enjoy the way that they play with the Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau relationship and how he is this really, uh, you know, he's very whipped and he does everything that she tells him to, even though she's just awful to him. But I love that they they let you step into his imagination as he pictures himself killing her. And, and we get this sense that he is very unhappy in this relationship, but he's too passive to do anything about it. He just doesn't have the right way to actually end the relationship. And I, I, it's always been so fun to just kind of see those moments like where he just pulls the gun out and shoots her at the garden party and then everybody else just starts applauding and you've got the one person's <laughs> like, what a shot or whatever he says. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a, it's, it's a fun way to do that and, and just kind of play that type of a relationship. And then, you know, the, then you've got Fluffy as they named the giant, I don't know, monkey monster creature that's in the box. Yeah. 
how it lives that long, who knows? You don't ask these questions when you're watching a story like that because it's there's no logic to uh, or reasoning to it. But uh, you know, that creature is just one of those things that just is just a very terrifying creature, and it's you know going back to my childhood. That definitely was something that made me jump when I was a kid, seeing that giant thing with those enormous teeth. And just watching as he, you know, started eating Mike the janitor. I mean, first of all, if you ever uncover a box like this, never stick your hand in it, especially no. if you see eyes inside. No, yeah, uh, that's that's a mistake. That's just he's just meant to go. And then you've got that poor student who goes uh, and and is going to kind of try helping Professor Stanley with this box. <laughs> and this is, I think, one of the shining moments of Tom Savini's makeup effects. Watching as this creature. Uh, which looks great in and of itself, but watching as it bites down on this kid. I mean, first he takes a swipe across his shoulder, and then he just bites into him on his face. And, I mean, it's a bite that seriously, I mean, it rips out an entire chunk of his face. And it's like it's, like, it's gorgeous in the most, you know, technical way of, of looking at it. I mean, obviously it's an awful thing to see, but the way that they do it is just fantastic. And then, you know, he rakes him across the face and then pulls him in to devour him. I mean, it's, it's so fun. It is. And you know, I I think just moving back just a few minutes before that, when, when the janitor gets taken in, there is that sequence when his hand is, uh, is up in the box and he's already been attacked and he's, you can tell he's exhausted and he's not doing well. And the, there is this just awful moment where his eyes get a little bit wide and the blood starts pouring down his arm right before we actually get the reveal of the monster itself as the lid opens up and he pulls the janitor inside and eats him and it's so we don't have that that brilliant sort of eating the student kind of makeup effect but you do get that really um that haunting bit of of horror as we watch this guy in just sort of broad light be eaten by this this uh, monster without giving too much away uh that it's it's you, you know you kind of you lose the scare yeah right uh, but then it takes us back to you know the whole time you're wondering you, you kind of know okay of course there's going to be a way to to tie this back to Hal Holbrook there has to be and uh, then I think it really gets good because Hal Holbrook gets to show uh, how his glee at figuring out that there is a way to get rid of Billy uh, for good. <laughs> yeah. And he goes through the mechanics, this wonderful sort of cleaning the blood montage uh, of of cleaning up down in the basement. You know, he sees the evidence, he sees the crate there, uh, and he uh, he cleans up all the blood and lures her down and says, you know, and and, and with a trick that says you got to help this this girl. She's been hurt or she's scared of of my friend. He didn't do, you know, he's not very good. He's not a very good guy, and he, he somehow abused her. And you need to to come help and and lures her in. The sequence where he is shaking her, trying to to wake the creature. Mm-hmm. and shaking her against the thing in this movie that is so kind of fun and frivolous and and spooky scary and you know not very serious uh ends up being one of the highlights of the film sort of the dramatic highlights of the film for me i just i love that sequence because you you get to see him running out of steam his glee has just gone uh into high gear and you see that frustration kick in of oh my god what if this doesn't work mm-hmm. uh it has to work it has to work he gets desperate and finally she gets uh she gets taken 
Yeah, it works out in his favor. It's just, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just wonderful. Well, and that is a great moment, and I think one of the reasons it works so so well is because that is a great look at just like the real psychology of this person. You know, you really. Uh, for somebody who we, we've seen inside of his head so often with his wife, and we understand how annoying and frustrating she is, but we really get to, you know, as he's shaking her and having that, he's going from glee to anger to kind of panic and, and almost depression, realizing that, hey, this thing might not actually work. Uh, I mean, it's 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 great the way that plays out. It really is, uh, and and his the you know the aftermath when it, he actually watches it happen, and then he has to kind of excuse himself and go out into the hall and and recover, uh, you know, from this emotional sort of climax. It was it was a it's just a great a great bit uh, in a in a movie that's otherwise, um, you know, it's got some funny bits to it, but it, but this really becomes kind of the highlight for me. Absolutely. Uh, the one I, I, I remember the most is, is creeping up on you. We've talked a bit about that, uh, about E.G. Marshall uh, being infested by cockroaches. This is a hard one to forget. Yeah. <laughs> Once you see, uh, you know, the dead E.G. Marshall basically kind of exploding with the cockroaches pouring out of his body, I mean, it's it, you really can't get... Can't get that out of your head. It's pretty. It is a pretty awful image. Yeah, it, it's it's really horrible. And he carries this one. There are a couple of uh, of uh, appearances by other uh, by another actor, but generally he carries this one by himself. His him in his uh, in his lair and um, and his poison, and he ends up ends up getting taken over. Yeah. Uh, by the cockroaches. This was the one that kept me up at night when I first saw it. This was the one that was just because they're, they're so small, you can't see them until it's too late. Yeah. The cockroaches. It's, you know, the, I don't know. You grow up thinking about bugs, and you know, I, I get this with my kids all the time now because they're the age, but they're, you know, you have these bugs called earwigs. Well, oh, yeah. why are they called earwigs? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> there's no good, good reason I know of why they're called earwigs, <laughs> you know? Um, but, you know, but ex- <laughs> the reason I thought they were called earwigs is because they would crawl into your ear and, 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 cr- and dig into your brain and lay their eggs. That was kind of the story that I had. So as, as a kid, you know, you get stories like that in your head of bugs crawling into your body and it just it really kind of sticks with you and i think that's something that stephen king and george romero really tap into very effectively here the whole idea of this kind of uh, this uh, bubbling up of something that is unseen from underneath you and all around you that kind of comes out of the woodwork uh, and literally like out of the drains and then just and destroys you from within i mean it's it really is creepy I, you've got me thinking now about earwigs. <laughs> do they, is that a thing they do? They no, really do that? no, they don't really do that. But I, that's think, like, I thought they just hid in the moist, dark places and then came up and ate fruit that you leave out. <laughs> is that what you thought? <laughs> I was hoping. I don't know why they're called earwigs, but that was the story, like, as kids, that we all said, oh, stay away from those, because if, if they get too close to your ear, they'll crawl into your ear and dig into your brain and lay eggs. It's totally not. I'm on they, Wikipedia right now. That's to totally not what they do. There's, they, it's in the dirt. They have nests I know it's in the not dirt. true. <laughs> why do you say these things to me? 
to keep you up at night. Oh, <laughs> goodness. They squirt a foul-smelling yellow liquid in the form of jets from scent glands on the dorsal side of their third and fourth abdominal segment. That's about as bad as it gets. They stink. I guess they can pinch on those old tails. Yeah. I don't know about that. They're not very strong pinchers, though. Man. Well, this has been a horrible conversation. Who else do you (laughs) want to talk about? Well, okay, so that's all the stories. You know, I think that the strength of this film falls into the uh, the story construction that Stephen King had in really paying homage to these early comic books and then the direction that George Romero has in creating this world. And, and like you've already said, the the editing plays key with that. The cinematography by Michael Gornick, I think, is incredibly important. The way that um, they use the lighting, these really dramatic lighting setups and the changes um, that you don't see very often in films, but where, you know, when, when all of a sudden, like, the guy comes through the door with the cake, uh, you know, the lighting in the room goes from normal to all of a sudden, as the background behind her changes to that comic book splash, uh, her lighting goes from normal to all of a sudden deep blue or dark red. And, and, it, and the way that they play with the lighting on set uh, physically is, I mean, it's very exciting and it's very comic booky and stylized. And that's something I think that works so well in creating this kind of pulp style is, you know, they, they all worked together. Michael Gornick, uh, the cinematographer, uh, George Romero, uh, as the director, all of the editors, have you, as you already said, and Cletus Anderson and, uh, Larry Fulton as the production designer and art director, um, really helped kind of create this world but for me it really falls down to the cinematography even just some of these great uh, Dutch angles and kind of the the tilted angles that you Mm -hmm. get uh, at the key moments Um, I I feel like it's uh, it's really solid work and they um, they just found the right way to pay the homage and and make the film work the way it needed to for what they were trying to achieve I think so too. I, I think one of the things that they do th- that this you know, particularly when you look at the art direction that, and the production design, that as they as they keep cutting uh, in and out of the the comic book, just when the story gets its most intense, then we get this crazy light change, right? Or we, we get this this crazy tonal change, or or we go back and we're suddenly in a panel. The transition will, will take us right into a comic panel, and we'll actually see the borders of the comic. And one of the things that that does, or or you know, we do this uh, particularly in the crate. We have these, um, the titles, the sort of horror comic titles. This is later in Henry's office or Henry's study with this kind of hand-drawn clock. And one of the things that that does for us, I think, is it keeps the emotional sort of uh, tone and tenor for the viewer at a very consistent level. Like, you can't get too scared because it'll bring you back out of it just in time to send you to this next uh, this next little peak. And I think they, they it's just paced. It ends up being paced really well. And I think this is a real challenge when you look at these anthology films, that the length gets it can get out of control on these anthology films. You know, if you... Uh, you know, and and I think this one, uh, in contrast, is it ends up feeling uh, very natural to me. It's an easy. It's an easy watch. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. Uh, you got any other uh, any other uh, you know good stories, or should we uh, should we talk money? Well, um, I did want to. Um... We, sh- we should probably mention again. Do we talk about Joe King? Hill. Uh, well, you mentioned that Stephen King's son plays yeah. the boy at the beginning, and uh, his father is played by um, Tom Atkins. 
Tom Atkins, who uh, you know was just the year before in uh, Escape from New York. Right. He was and the I, yeah. Yeah, he's he's the one of those faces general, that yeah. just is in a lot of things, lots and lots of things. Um, you know, I don't know if I have anything else. I mean, George Romero obviously is somebody that we should sp- talk a little bit about. Um, he's just kind of a, a key character in the uh, kind of the the horror genre, really, and particularly the zombie genre, because. I mean, really, with Night of the Living Dead back in 1968 and then the, the other two films, um, the initial two films in that uh, series, I should say. I mean, he ended yeah, up Dawn making... Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and then Land of the Dead when he brought it back and... Uh, and Diary of the Dead. Diary of the Dead, and Night of the Living Dead. Survival of the Survival of the Dead, yeah. yeah. So it's been a lot of these uh, dead stories. Right. But, I mean, really, I think in the world of horror, he really is one of those people who stands out for... Um, one starting kind of as kind of the independent filmmaker mindset um, and allowing people like Tom Savini to do these outlandish effects that really kind of uh, helped these films kind of create uh, just a new identity for themselves, I think. You know, they're able to really play around with stuff. I mean, whether it's like the, the zombie whose head you know gets chopped off by the helicopter blades in, in Dawn of the Dead or like the the intestines getting pulled out in Day of the Dead, yeah. or I mean, there's always something that he was doing to kind of step it up, and that certainly holds true in this film. You know, he used Tom Savini to great effect, creating the 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 zombie bodies of the different people who were resurrected, or Jordy Verrill when he's kind of become the plant monster, or the fantastic fluffy creature that's in the crate. I mean, I love all of that, and and then of course the the real cockroaches that. You know, I are just creepy uh, enough. Um, so I think that that's just that's uh, you know I think that's all I really want to say about George Romero. But I think he's a very important filmmaker, even if he doesn't get his due, and likely will never win an Oscar or anything. But I think he is a very important filmmaker in uh, in our lifetime that has actually brought a lot to the modern horror genre. Oh yeah, I, I I think that's absolutely true. And he doesn't have all that many credits when you look at, uh, you know, what he's been doing over the last sort of four decades. Um, but you know, those credits have spun off uh, a definitive class of horror films uh, that can all be traced back to you know Romero and and his and his teams um, that have that have gone on to do great stuff. So um, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, um, so two last stories. Mm-hmm. One, so these cockroaches that they used were actually um, imported from Guatemala. They were hissing cockroaches that they used in, in the their creeping up on you story. They could not actually get the permit to bring them in, uh, an export permit. So they had to use a temporary permit. And so what that meant is I guess they actually had to count before and after every single shot every cockroach and make sure that they had them all accounted for. And they had, if any of them died, they had to keep records of all the dead ones. And they had to just like keep track of every single one of these so that at the end of it, they could export them back all uh, out of the country um, because they didn't actually have a permit to keep them. Which... Do, you, do you have any sense of just how many cockroaches they used? I don't have any sense. Um, but, you know, they, they had them all in, in styrofoam egg cartons in a van. So I imagine that, I mean, just picturing a van full of egg cartons, I imagine it was just a lot of them. I mean, when you see them come out at the end, it's just a lot, a lot of, a lot of things. Yeah. No, it's definitely a lot. I, you know, I just wonder how many, you know, 
Yeah. How many shots they were sort of kind of reused, you know? I mean, do they really need 10,000 cockroaches? Or are we talking about 500 cockroaches? Or 500 well, know... cockroaches is a lot of cockroaches. It does seem like a lot of cockroaches. I know that when they actually had the, the dummy of E.G. Marshall and they had them bursting out of him, um, they actually were they there was a couple times where as they were kind of pushing the cockroaches out of the mouth um they i, I don't know i guess they were pushing them too fast or something and the cockroaches all kind of jammed and they couldn't move and it was just like this giant kind of cockroach you know like mush thing that just was pushing out of the mouth so they had they it took a little time to to work it correctly to make to find the right way to have them come out of him. And even the chest, when they burst out of his chest, he couldn't get these cockroaches to burst out. So they actually had to create this chest on this dummy out of toilet paper that they then kind of painted over. And then they put the kind of the blood inside. So when the cockroaches came up, the toilet paper was easy for them to get through. So they would just crawl through the toilet paper and leave their little bloody tracks when they went out. That's, uh, well, that's awful. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I just, I, I've been searching here. I can't find anything that says how many there were, but they did supplement them by making, uh, making many of them nuts and raisins. Yes. Yeah. That's awful. And then the last thing that I want to mention is that for some reason, this is, uh, you know, I don't know how popular this is for Warner Brothers on, on uh, Blu-ray DVD and all that, but uh, Every release that they've ever released here in the U.S. has only ever been just the movie and the trailer. Um, however, if you're over in the U.K., you can actually, or, or Scotland included, um, you can actually get the two-disc special edition of this that actually has an hour and a half making of documentary called Just Desserts, The Making of Creep Show. It's got a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, deleted scenes, commentary, all sorts of stuff, and uh, they're actually getting ready to release the Blu-ray. I, I, well, they may have released it by now, but it's it, even more stuff. And for some reason, Warner Brothers is not taking any of that and releasing it here in the U.S., and I don't understand why. And I was actually trying to see if anybody had posted the Just Desserts, The Making of Creep Show anywhere online. I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a little disappointing. It's one of those weird things where it's, I, I don't understand the mentality when you have all that stuff that's just sitting out there. Why don't you just put it out with the, you know, the Blu-ray or whatever, when you release it. Right. Right. It's not doing anybody any good. Just sitting there. Yeah, exactly. Could do me good. It could do me good. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's, let's do uh, numbers. Yeah, so this film came out toward the end of 82. Um, they had a production budget of $8 million. I couldn't find anything for prints and advertising. Um, but, you know, $8 million is uh, still a fairly handsome chunk for the time. Uh, domestically, uh, th they called this film kind of a slow burn. It took a little time to make its money back, but it did make its money back. And domestically, it ended up making about $21 million. Um, so they made a profit. I couldn't find anything about international but, uh, yeah, when you look at the adjusted profit per finished minute, it was raking in about $260,000 per finished minute. So where does they that, did pretty well for itself. Where does that put, us, put it in the, uh, in the stack? In the stack, it ends up number 85 when it's adjusted. So, uh, you know, it's not at the top of the list, but uh, yeah, it still did pretty well for itself. I love it. I think that's great. What a fun movie. It is. It really is. Um, uh, let's uh, let's head over to Flick Chart and rank this thing. Let's do it. 
Flickchart.com slash the next reel. That's where you can go find our stack rankings of our favorite films on a great service. And you should join up there and you should friend us up there and you can see if your rankings match our rankings. That would be great. And where do we begin? All right. Let's do it. Hey, this is a perfect start. Creep show or carry? Hmm. I would say creep show. I would too. Oh. I love Carrie, but Creepshow, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I saw it when I was young and it's attached to my brain like it won't let go, like a cockroach. Creepshow or 12 <laughs> Monkeys? <laughs> 12 Monkeys. I would, gosh, I, I feel like I would do Creepshow, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. I just, that's a, that's a vote of, uh, is it a vote of guilt or shame? I don't know what that is. I'll go twelve monkeys with you. All right. All right I know show. that that I know what that does. I mean that that. But it's I, okay. I, I would. It's okay. I, yeah, it's legit. It is. No, I, yeah. I I know I know what you're coming from there. Creep show or the town. Hmm. Hmm. Very different films that I would watch for different for reasons. Very different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I I. Uh... The nice thing about Creepshow is that you don't have to watch all of it. Yeah, you can watch it in little nice chunks. I still think I'd probably do The Town. Yeah, I probably would too. Creepshow or Dark City? Dark City. I'd do Creepshow. How much? I would do Creepshow, yeah. Like really thinking about it, I probably would go Creepshow. Over Dark City. Yeah. I might have to rethink every movie we've ever done together. <laughs> I'll give you Dark City, though. I'll give you Dark I, City. Well, I mean, I I was going to give it up because I feel like I owe you for 12 nah, monkeys already. No, it's okay. Don't worry. I, I feel guilty picking Creepshow over some of these. <laughs> uh, my guilt is coming out. It's making me uh, uh, bend. All right, Creepshow or Adaptation? I'm pretty sure you're going to say Adaptation. I, I, yeah, I think I am. It's funny because I would say creep show. <laughs> uh, I, uh, but but I'm I'm pretty easy on this. One. I think I'm 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 pretty fair split. I'll give you adaptation on this one. All right, all right, creep show or the natural. <laughs> I would do creep show. I would do creep show. All right. I, it's like we're guilty for picking Creepshow or something. I know. It's so funny. Creepshow or Chronicle. I would do Creepshow. Really? Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay, look at that. Sandwiched between Adaptation and Chronicle, Creepshow comes in at number 71. And that, my friend, is our 150th movie that we've ranked. There we go. Oh, <laughs> there we go. 150 at 71. That's right. That's right. Just above the halfway point. I like it. Yeah. Have you come to any uh, any Brave New Awakenings at 150? Uh, no, just that I have a heck of a lot of fun watching movies. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, I. Where do we go from here? We're continuing our Stephen King. Yeah, and you ever just kind of walking along his uh, the early uh, filmmaking uh, days? We're gonna. Go visit a little farm with a big old dog named Cujo. Oh, Cujo, Cujo. So cute. <laughs> I, uh, this one I don't remember very much of. I remember being scared, though. 
I definitely remember this one. This is one that I watched a lot when I was a kid. Did you? Yeah. That's not, a not, horrible not, thing to watch when you're a kid. I was a, watching the Smurfs. I, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't that young. It no. was, you know, well, I don't know. When did it come out? We're going to talk about this next week. It came out in, uh, 80, oh, I don't know, 83? Three? Or four. Okay. It was, yeah, 83. This is another one I didn't see in the theaters, though. I saw this much later. Yeah, likewise. Uh, but I had this, uh, again, I had this taped, and I watched it all the time. And, I don't know, burned into my brain. Can't wait. Yeah. I am looking forward to talking about it next week, my friend. Yes, indeedy. <laughs> now, Pete, I think you better go take care of your bug problems. I was just going to say I have to go to bed, but the problem is there's earwigs now <laughs> in my head. <laughs> and I don't want them in my head. Oh, yeah. Because they lay eggs. You're a jerk. And then the babies have only one way to get out. actually saying that you should see just one of these uh, particular vignettes. Eddie writes, I think you'll love Crate. Now, you, you should know that the entire review is written in all caps. Mm. Love to my favorite is Crate. Think it's a Stihas movie sen it a dozen times at least and never get tired of watching it it. Has four or five episodes. I think it's a steal for the price. If you like horror movies, get it for your collection. Even if you've seen it several times, watch it on Halloween again. It's cheap. It online. It cost me around six bucks. Exclamation point. Wow. Yeah, I didn't like that. The one. next Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> I I probably should have read that one before I read that one. <laughs> it, it looked funny, it looked funnier. The visual is funnier. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what a stay sometimes, his, stay sometimes there's, is. There is a visual element to these sometimes yeah. that makes them work that much better. Yeah. Well, you know, mine you, is you a one. You try stuff. That's right. You know, that's what you got to do. Mine is a one star by Filterite, Filterite uh, from Dublin, Ireland, who said, I wish I never had to give this a star. They say horror movies are a test of your wits and your endurance, and this movie does that, but not in the way they may have intended it to be. The acting is so diabolical. You begin to wonder, why the hell did you put your money to waste on a movie like this? The acting is so hilariously bad that when friends and family interrupt and start talking about, think I ought to mow the lawn tomorrow, what do you think, dear? You gladly give your opinion just so you can get away from the terrible film. Now, when you think of a George Romero film, you think, oh, this might be good because of such classics as the Living Dead trilogy and codenamed Trixie, the crazies to you and me, and the amiable Bruiser. But then this just really tears your heart out. Again, I go back to the acting and how poor it is, but you've just got to see it to believe it. I mean, how do these, quote, actors, I use the term loosely, sleep at night knowing they made a turkey like this? Actually, I'm being cruel. Turkeys have better taste than to watch this tripe. Avoid at all costs. Please, I beg you, don't submit yourself to this torture. Wow. Mm. Wow. You know, yeah. I like that he worked both turkey and tripe into the same, yeah. right. same thing. And I like how he says, 
you've got to see it to believe it. And then says, avoid at all costs. I beg you don't submit yourself. <laughs> That's a good catch. That's yeah. a great catch. This was a very is, complex review. It is. I really think many so. Many layers. Many layers. Thank you, Amazon. Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.